confess that there is crookedness even in our own hearts when we read and hear your word. And the crookedness in our hearts wants to bend your word to make it mean things that it doesn't mean so that we can feel about our way, ourselves in ways that please us. So would you straighten out what is bent in our hearts even now? Give us a great appetite for the bread of life. Help us to feed on your word. Help us to love what you say. Lord, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. Incline our hearts to hear, to listen, to change, to obey. Make your word satisfying to us this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's Proverbs 27.6. An enemy only tells you what you want to hear so that you'll give him what he wants. A friend tells you what you need to hear. As we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, we may well feel like the preacher Kohelet has wounded us. He has tried to make sense of a fallen world, not without God, but with God. And along the way, he's said some things that have hurt our feelings, that have disturbed us, confused us, concerned us made us feel icky, maybe guilty, maybe sad. As Kohelet, gatherer of observations, he has taken a long, hard, unflinching look at life in a fallen world. And he has been brutally honest in showing us what he has found. Absurdity of absurdities. Everything is absurd. That's his whole thesis point. That's his whole thing. Everything is absurd. That in itself, we don't like that. We don't like a sermon that's about that. We're not sure he has our best interests at heart when he says that. But as king of Israel, subordinate to God's word, He has held on to his faith that God is still sovereign over this senselessness that we see and feel. God is still good in the midst of all the ridiculousness that we experience in this life. Therefore, life itself is still good, even though its absurdity is patented. That we have experienced it firsthand. I've always been praying through Ecclesiastes, and he has had to admit himself the limitations not only of his own search for order, but the limitations of wisdom itself. 
as an instrument in us. At times, he's either hurt our feelings or driven us to the brink of despair. Work, money, time, pleasure, justice, even the cycles of nature itself have all come in for radical critique. Death is a great equalizer, but he wants us to come to grips with how the world really is so that we can see God for who he really is in relationship to the world as it really is. There's a sugarcoat before us. These 12 chapters embody the faithful wounds of a friend. Before he signs off, he teaches us one last lesson. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14. If you're never in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14. The lesson is that wisdom spurs us to take God more seriously than this world. Wisdom spurs us to take God more seriously than we take the world. Wisdom does this in three ways. Wisdom teaches us, wisdom motivates, trains us, and wisdom actually humanizes us. Follow along with me in your own Bible as Read out loud for us, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing, studying, and arranging many proverbs of great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like those. Like nails firmly fixed are the collective sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Making many books, there is no end. Too much study, the weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been Fear, love, and keep is commandment. For this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Wisdom spurs us to take God more seriously than we take the world. It does this in three ways. First, wisdom teaches us, or maybe even better, it re-teaches. The preacher was wise. Verse 9 says. So wait a minute. Wasn't the preacher constantly calling out the limits of wisdom? He's got whole chapters. He's showing us how wisdom disappointed him and will often disappoint us. So, evidently, noticing the limits of wisdom is actually part of being wise. It's wise to realize that the Proverbs are true, even though you can't treat them as promises that will invariably come true for you if you apply them every time. 
But Kohelet was not content to be wise merely for himself. He was wise for the sake of other people. He taught the people knowledge. He wasn't just wise in himself. He, he didn't just care about being very wise on his own in a vacuum, apart from any relationships or apart from being useful and edifying to other people. He wanted other people to learn knowledge so that they could be wise as well. He wants others to know what to expect from the world and what not to expect from the world. Not simply trying to be the best Kohelet he can be. He's trying to get others to see how God has created the world and humanity. How we sought out many devices and sins to undermine the Creator's authority over us. How God subjected this world to futility. That he made some things in this world crooked. And that we can't make those, those things straight. He wants other people to realize those things about this world and God's relationship to it so that they can live appropriately in this world without being disillusioned. He wants everyone to see God has put absurdity into this world as a just judgment, punishment for the absurdity of our rebellion against a perfectly loving, infinitely wise, gracious, sovereign, righteous, kind, generous God. What we learned through sinning was the knowledge of good and evil. But we learned that through rebellion, not through obedience. The Kohelet now reteaches us through wisdom how to use that knowledge without abusing it. And you realize that Kohelet has been discipling you all this time. He's been teaching you Follow God in Christ. He's reteaching us how to understand God, the world, and ourselves. That means he cares. He cares to share his observations about this world and about God and his law with you so that you can learn what he has learned. So it doesn't take you all that bad experience and all that time to go through all that he did to learn what he learned. Kohelet is not an ivory tower theologian. He had a tender-hearted corporate concern for God's people as a whole. And we ourselves should want to emulate. You and I should want to be wise. Not so that we can be greater in ourselves. Or known as something. Or viewed as something by other people. So that we have some knowledge, some encouragement, some instruction, some wisdom to share with other people so that they can live their lives wisely along with us. But if sharing this knowledge is to make it onto your radar as a priority, then caring for other people has to be on your radar. Helen wants to be useful to us. The question is, do you want to be useful to others? Or do you just want them to be useful to you? And what do you expect out of your experience in this church, your relationships, 
You just expect to come here every Sunday and hear a sermon that doesn't make you bark and have relationships that are fun and that are fun where people listen to you, make you feel better, and counsel you? Or are you coming to this church because you think you can actually help other people grow in life? You're looking for ways that you can do You should want to bring others along in your own discipleship to Jesus. If you learn from Jesus, you should want others to learn from Jesus with you and even through you. You should want to facilitate other people's spiritual growth and wisdom and grace. That should be a priority. You should want to come here not just to get wise for yourself, but to get wise so that you can be wise for others. So you can be a resource of wisdom for other people. Wisdom miscarries when it's not shared. Don't get me wrong, wisdom doesn't simply want others to know that you know something. Everybody, everybody can see right through you when you're sharing wisdom simply because you want other people to know that you know it. Don't be fooled by that kind of attitude or motive. That's just pride projecting itself, imposing itself on other people. But wisdom does want others to know what you know so that they can benefit from it as you have, even if they forget that you're the one who told them. But if you're wise, then you will take an interest in helping others. That's part of this. It is foolish to keep your wisdom to yourself. You know, that other thing. This is part Parcel of what it means to make disciples and participate together in building a whole culture of discipleship in the local church. God, God did not give you wisdom just so that you could parade it. That's true. You feel better about yourself for not being the fool that you used to be. He gave you that wisdom to share with others so that they could become wise by walking and talking with you, by living that Christian life with you, by watching you. Morning. The dad. Talking to his son in the book of Proverbs is a classic illustration. Dad knows wisdom. But the dad knows that the son does not know wisdom. The dad knows that the son needs dad's wisdom. So the dad initiates a discipling relationship with his son, not in a condescending way, not in a kind of pejorative, looking down on him sort of way, not in a prideful way. But in a concerned way, a caring way, so that the son can learn wisdom. That's wisdom acting in love. Wisdom cares enough to teach. Wisdom is patient enough to teach. There's one thing to be wise. It's another thing to be patient enough. Share your wisdom with someone else. You walk with them slowly enough so that they actually get it. And you wait for them. You slow down a little bit for them so that they can catch up with you. Now you may well say, well, I'm still working on getting wise myself so I can teach wisdom. That's why I haven't taught others. How then? 
and you become a wise brother. How do you get that? How do you become this kind of man? Well, out of the picture, Kohelet becomes a wise teacher for others. He did that by weighing and putting and arranging many problems with great fear. The word weighing is probably actually better translated listen. You know I don't do this much. I don't mess with the translation. But here I think some of the scholars are right. This is a verb related to the Hebrew word for ear. Which is why the Greek translators actually render it something like giving ear. Become wise enough to speak edifying words. You start by listening. You've got to humble yourself to listen. Think about how many times in Proverbs the dad tells the son, listen, hear, make your ear attentive, incline your ear. That's how you start becoming wise. You shut your mouth and you listen to somebody else who's saying something that you may even disagree with. Okay, I gotta listen. I gotta be quiet. I gotta quit talking back. I gotta quit acting like I already know better. I gotta quit acting like this is review for me. I gotta quit acting like, no, 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 I'm gonna do the good stuff. Now, listen. That's what Phil That's where he started. Gave ear. He didn't start by talking, he started by listening. Listening to God's word. Listening to wise teachers of God. Then he had something to say. Of course, in order to listen, you have to humble yourself. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to humble yourself? Are you teaching? It's one thing to humble yourself in your own quiet time to Scripture, because obviously you, you have to humble yourself to Scripture. I mean, then, if you're not doing that, you know you're fine with it. But can you humble yourself to someone else in this room who's teaching you scripture? Anybody. Not just me. Not just the elder. Some other man, some other woman might be further along in the faith than you are. Can you humble yourself to their application of God's word to your life? Are you willing to be discipled? Talk. Are you quick to listen? Slow to speak. That's where it all begins. Are you easy to disciple or are you hard to teach? Do you pursue being taught and discipled by others or do you avoid that because it's humbling or humiliating? Wisdom listens before it speaks, it learns before it teaches. You've been unwilling to listen. But it's no wonder if you don't have anything to say to other people. Listen by reading scripture with a teachable heart, by reading good books by other mature Christians, living or dead, faithfully interpret and teach scripture according to its true sense and meaning. You listen by praying to God for wisdom and then reading your Bible. You listen by submitting yourself to the teaching and discipling of a whole congregation in a local church. 
how else can you learn how to teach a disciple others if you yourself don't first know what it's like to be discipled and taught by somebody else? How are you going to even know what to expect out of somebody that you're discipling and teaching if you have not realized what that is in your own experience to be the one who's listening? Then once the preacher has listened, he can further study, he can organize the teaching he had learned. He can analyze the meaning more, deep, more, more deeply. He can synthesize it with other truths he had learned. He can put his Bible together. He can contextualize it in his own situation. He can know when it applies, when, it, when something else applies. He can then capitalize on it to compose his own faithful articulation of the same truth in his own words. Do you want to be able to do that? Don't you want to be able to do that, not just in your journal, but across the table from someone who needs it from you? Now, that's work, isn't it? That's work. you got to try to do that. you got to think, you got to pray, you got to listen. Stuff's not easy. Now, it's delightful work. It's interesting, instructive work. It's soul-feeding, soul-strengthening work. It's encouraging work. And it's work that made Kohelet himself useful to you and me. Don't you want to be useful to others like Kohelet has been useful to you? That's what makes the Christian life so wonderful. Is that you're not alone, and that you can see the Lord using you and the wisdom you've learned from God's Word and other people in the lives of others, and you see them being able by God's grace to imitate your way of life because you've been faithful to be wise and humble, kind, but This wisdom also speaks to be appreciated. He sought to find words of delight. Hmm. Wisdom states itself to encourage appreciation of wisdom in those who hear. You can't just be on the farm. Right? Like, yeah, sometimes, sometimes you, you really have to be bold and forthright to get it. Sometimes you've got to care about the way you say something just as much as what you're saying. Well, it's not enough for the praise of man, don't get it wrong, but wisdom does care to say the right thing with the right words, in the right way, at the top, right time, to the right person. So that whoever's listening can appreciate that wisdom for what it really is. That's what he's trying, been trying to do with us this whole time. That's all 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes is him trying to find words of delight to communicate to you what he's saying about God in this world and how to live with the absurdity of fallenness in a world that's actually still created and governed by a righteous, loving, unchanging, holy God. He knows he has hard things to say to us, but he's trying to find the most engaging and even endearing way to say it. Wants to use words and strategies that make this difficult teaching easier for us to hear and appreciate, especially for people who don't already agree with him. 
I mean, the Proverbs themselves, the way that it brings out their flavor, the way that it sets them in a favorable light, so that their luster can shine. It's rotating the jewels of wisdom for us. There's own language and explanation so that we can see them from different angles and appreciate them for what they are. The wisdom also studies to be believed. Uprightly, he wrote words of truth. That word, upright, that's about both personal and moral and vocational integrity. It's about both his life and his study habits, informing the straight edge of the word of God. You can say it a lot about the set of Ezra. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in his That was true of Kohelet just as much as it was true of Ezra. Kohelet was an Old Testament wisdom version of Timothy. Do your best, Paul said to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Kohelet rightly handled God's word and practiced what he preached. And then he was winsome in the way that he stated his suffering. He made the most of every opportunity. Those who did not already agree with him or needed him stayed himself in an understanding way. He didn't preach his own message, he preached God's message. Conveyed accurately what God said. In all his ways, he's a model for men. Wisdom motivates or trains us. I couldn't decide on what word was best, so I just. Wisdom motivates or trains us. Verses 11 and 12. It does this both positively and negatively. Positively, it says the words of the wise are like goads. You're in your prime time, like only my prime time, you run across that word and like, I don't know what a goad is, so I guess I'm sorry. What's a goad? A goad is a cattle crop. Of course, kind of hurt the cow. 
a little. Enough to make a difference. But of course, there's a difference between pain and injury, isn't there? You can cause pain without causing injury. I gotta give credit where credit's due. You know, I learned that from Jay Billis. Not the one who does Jay Billis. He was a sports announcer. He was announcing a basketball game. He was looking at a guy playing through some pain. He was admiring that. He said, look, this guy's not injured. He doesn't have a broken hand or a broken leg. You know, he's not sick. He's just, he's just in pain. So he can play through it. It's admirable to play through pain. It's stupid to play through injury. But there's a difference between pain and injury. Shepherd wants to cause a little bit of pain, but not injury. The cow's going to be just fine if you just open the cow. If you stab him, <laughs> it's different. You could do real injury. A prick, a poke, a sting, a swap, a bonk, a bruise, only just pain. I have to tell my children this all the time. They come to me with these little dinky little things, which is the youngest one. Yeah, look what happened out in the driveway. A millimeter of a red spot on my car. I don't know what to do, man. You're not injured. You can you can play through pain, injury, stop. Sometimes you need to feel pain in order to stop you from doing something more foolish. Out of God is only designed to cause a pain that changes a behavior, not an injury that stops your problem. You gotta learn yourself when you're reading wisdom. What's causing me pain? Is this pain, is this causing me pain? Or am I acting like this pain is injuring me when it's not? You know the kind of person that does that? Have you ever seen that kind of person? They get, they, they, they have pain, they hurt, but they act like they're totally injured and maimed. You're like, dude, I know it hurts. Get up. Man up. You, you're never, you're never going to make it through life if you act like every instance of pain is injuring you. Come on, man. Open up. When you get poked with a sharp metal point, what's your physical reaction to that? If you were to get poked on your bottom with a sharp metal poker as a practical joke by some well-intended but foolish teenager, <laughs> your reaction would be to kind of arch your back and move forward, right? That's what the words of the wise do. They are goats, they're thoughts, they're tricks. Not to injure you, but to move and to motivate you. Towards progress and out of danger. Train Coach you. To accustom and habituate you to wise business. Are wise words unwelcome sometimes? Yes, they are. In fact, they're so often unwelcome that Kohelet talks about the words of the wise as goats, cattle That's what they are. It hurts. 
and hear the words of the wise because you know they're right about you and about God and about reality and your sins and you don't really have an argument against them. The words of the wise feel like being close to the cattle crop. But that's how much we need them. That is how ignorant we are of That's how stubborn the human heart really is. We are, in God's words, stiff-necked. You know where that metaphor comes from? It comes from the Israelites worshiping the golden what? The golden calf. Cows, bovines are stiff-necked. Being stiff-necked is bovine language. It's, hey, cow, stiffen in your neck and get over here. I'm going over there. I don't care. You gotta come over here. If you understand the meaning of that metaphor, you become like what you worship. Stubborn is that stiff neck golden cat. So now wisdom feels to us like a cattle cross. So the words of the wise are not like down pillows. That's what we want them to be like, right? Not for the fly. But not like satin sheets or a polyester workout shirt or a cozy fleece pullover. They're not like a wiffle ball or a styrofoam pool noodle. You can hit a wiffle, you can throw a wiffle ball as hard as you can at me, and it will never hurt. But the same cannot be said about the words of the wise. They're like cattle prods. They get you going whether you want to go or not. They're corrective discipline. They're sharp. They're pointed. And the use of them probably means two things. One, you're probably going in the wrong direction because a prod is used either to rouse you from being inert or to turn you around so you're headed in the right direction, not the wrong direction. If there's danger like a thief trying to steal or a predator on the hunt, the cow doesn't know that. The shepherd does. Cow's heading towards falling into a ditch or off a ravine. Cow doesn't know that, but the herdsman knows it. The prod then is used to motivate, to protect, to correct, to discipline if the cow's being obnoxious to other cows. A goat or a cow prod gets the cow's attention when it's either not paying attention, not doing what it should be doing, or when it's doing something it should not be doing, or when it's sleeping while it should be awake. And two, someone is using that fraud on you, using wisdom towards you, because they care about you. They care about you. If, if someone is using wisdom with you, because if they're using it wisely, you got to understand, they care about you. Even if they're poking you a little too hard, you feel like, hey, you're injuring me. Work and 
from his word. We told things we don't like here. We don't read a Bible text that we don't like, and we argue against it. We try to set other texts that we like more over against the ones that we don't like. So if we're not stiff, we don't have to submit to them. Even more often, we stiff in our necks when other members or elders of the congregation try to speak wisdom to us in love in a way that inevitably is going to cause us pain. We don't like that. That's what we hate most of all. We don't mind it if we're just reading our own Bibles and God gives it to us directly. And then we just melt into a puddle of tears. Because we're all alone and nobody else has to see us exercising humility. But all of a sudden, when it's somebody else in the congregation, bringing God's word to bear on me in a personal conversation that requires changing, ah, then all of a sudden we get our back And they go, oh, you're not being gentle enough. You're poking hurts. That hurts. You're injuring me. Well, are they really injuring you? Or do you just not like being poked? Or do you just not like it that somebody else having to poke you says something about you that you don't want to believe? Well, the Bible says, 
decrees and confessions that distill the truth of the Bible into consecrated form. But they ignore theological books written by godly saints from all the ages that expound the doctrine of truth the divine divine. Don't do that. <laughs> it's simply unlivable to say, I believe the Bible. And then not use language or concept or teaching from outside the Bible to say what you mean by believing the Bible. If you say, I believe in justification by faith alone, apart from works, I ask you, what do you mean by that? And you just keep repeating, well, justification by faith alone, apart from works. Okay. I know you're trying to be faithful. Now you've got to give me something. You can't define a phrase or a word by simply using that same phrase or word repeatedly. You've got to find different ways. You've got to find synonyms. You've got you to find illustrations and metaphors and ways of speaking to help us know what you mean when you say, I'm biblical. Biblical how? Lots of people want to be biblical. There's a difference between sola scriptura, which we believe in, and solo scriptura, which we do not believe in. So love scripture means the Bible alone is the ultimate and final authority for all truth, doctrine, practice, creeds, confession, and moralism. It is, as the philosophers would say, the norming norm. The norm standard that norms all other norms. It is the yardstick by which all other yardsticks are measured. Scripture. The ultimate standard. But that doesn't mean that scripture is the only book you should ever read or learn from. He's not telling you to avoid all of the writing or learning. He's simply warning you, watch out. That ain't the Bible. Only the Bible's the Bible. So first out of the second caution. And don't take such writing so far that it leads you away from the wisdom of scripture. So I like 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Test everything, hold fast to what is good. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. There's another temptation to know and to go beyond what God has revealed. In other words, you keep studying because you think you can actually know more than the Bible reveals. In other words, you start studying as if Deuteronomy 29, 29 wasn't in the Bible. And it didn't change the belong to God. There are hidden things that he is hiding from you and from me. That we're not allowed to try anything. That if you try, you will fail. You may regret. But the things that are revealed for us and our, and our, and our children correct. Right. 2 John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Trying to know too much may reveal that you don't know God at all. Because you think, oh, well, he's just revealed everything to you. God doesn't do that. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The Lord gives the church without history teachers, and we should learn from them down through church history. To be aware that 
they are fallible, that we can and should learn from this. That's everything. We'll pass to what is good. Just like Peter 13, 7. Consider your leaders to the outcome of their body. Imitate their way of faith. That is a biblical prescription for doing church history and historical theology. There's also further temptation to keep studying because you refuse to acknowledge the truth of what God has already revealed. You want to study yourself all the way to contradicting Scripture. Because you don't like what Scripture says or what it requires of This book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis paints a scene of a philosophic seeker being invited into the gates of heaven. Here's what the seeker was told by the gatekeeper of heaven. The gatekeeper says, I can promise you, philosopher, no scope for your talents here in heaven, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land, not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. And the seeker replied, ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? The gatekeeper of heaven says, listen, listen. Once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for. There was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers. And were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. Ah, but when I became a man, the seeker replies, I put away childish things. He shouldn't be saying it like that. Trying to contradict what true Christian maturity actually looks like. What true intellectual maturity looks like. Derek Kidner adds his own reflection on that scene from C.S. Lewis's Great divorce, he says, no argument, no appeal will ever avail against this infinite elasticity. Oh, I can just stretch any kind of truth statement to mean whatever I want it to mean. The encounter, already fruitless, ends with a gentle sophist's remembering an appointment, making his apologies, and hurrying off to his discussion group in hell. Don't study so much just because you want to prove the Bible wrong. Third, finally, wisdom humanizes or perhaps rehumanizes us. Verses 13 and 14. Fear God and keep his commands. All this wisdom, all this absurdity from the limitations of wisdom, all this confusion and complexity and frustration about life and the way it works in a fallen world, yet at the end of the day, being wise in our own world, comes down to fear God and keep His commandments. It's the opposite of what the world's telling you, of how to be wise. The world tells you, forget God and write your own commandments. So what is this fear of God? What's it mean? What does it do? Well, look at, listen to our French friend Jacques Ellul. 
This fear is the response to God's first basic initiative. God creates the covenant, and fear consists of recognizing that he is, in effect, the absolute sovereign. The sphere of this fear includes all of existence, and the heart is its special place. Fearing Yahweh means accepting his sovereignty. It means wanting his sovereignty in a concrete way. And this fear does not amount to a feeling. It's not terror, but a source of joy as we recognize that God's will for our lives is good and true. I think that's right. I think at the very bottom of the fear of God is an acknowledgement of his sovereignty. God is in control. You are not. God holds you. You do not hold him. God is in control of the world. You are not in control of the world. God is in control of your life. You are not in control of your life. God is sovereign. That is what it means to fear him. You accept his sovereignty and you want it. You want him to be sovereign. You want him to be in control. So the fear of the Lord means taking his sovereignty seriously, submitting to it, appreciating it, because you know you need him to reign as sovereign king over your sinful, finite, incompetent soul. You're not a very good king of your own life. God, God is a very good king of your life. And this means that being wise in the fear of the Lord expresses itself in obedience to God's law. Wisdom does not ignore and reject God's authority and commands. Wisdom appreciates and obeys God's authority and commands. Moses said to Israel of God's commands in Deuteronomy 4, 6, keep them and do them. Keep the Ten Commandments, do them. Obey this law that I've given you, for that will be your wisdom. Do you believe it's wise for you to reject your flesh and obey God's word in your heart when no one is watching? Or do you think you know better about how to manage your sinful desires? Do you think you can manage your sinful desires? Fearing God is wise, and wisdom keeps God's commands. In fact, this is what it means to be human. For this is all of humanity, is a better translation of the end of verse 13. The word for duty in Hebrew is not present in verse 13. This is not about duty. This is about being human. Fearing God and keeping his commands is not simply the whole duty of man. It is, more comprehensively, the whole of mankind himself. Fearing God and keeping his commands is not simply what it means to be wise or obedient or good or righteous. It's what it means to be you. 
what it, it's what it means to be a person. Now, again, the world thinks exactly the opposite. Unbelief thinks to ma maximize humanity by rebellion against God. You've heard the argument. Reject God's law. Reject all received authorities. Destroy the binary of male and female. Be your own God. Create your own reality. Follow your own heart. Write your own law. Be your own standard. And if you're faithful to that, God will approve of you. That is what it means to be fully human for a modern rationalist or a secular humanist. And that, according to Ecclesiastes, is foolishness. But it's not just unbelievers who need to hear this. Christians need to hear it too. Listen one last time to our French friend. We think the law, the commandment, and the love of God constitute a sort of small supplement to our life. They add something to our life. We move quickly from this stance then to considering obedience as something optional. And finally, worshiping Him becomes a kind of extra decoration on our well-lived life, something like our appreciation of music. Oh, why don't we just turn it on in the background, and that'll make it even more pleasant. But to the contrary, this fear and obedience of God is actually the only fixed and stable point. All of the person is reduced to this. All. That is, apart from this, a person is nothing. Apart from this fear of God and obeying His commandments, a person is nothing. The things that give us existence, truth and reality, the thing that suddenly creates us, is our relationship to God. Because remember, before that, Scripture presents us as dead in our sin. This relationship constitutes the whole person since stripping him of it leaves him with nothing else. After all, we have already found that everything else was vanity from the whole book of Ecclesiastes. You already saw everything else as vanity. The only thing left is fearing God and keeping His commands. So it's as if the whole book of Ecclesiastes has been asking, what does it mean to be human in a fallen world? How do I maximize my humanity? How do I maximize my humanity in this world before both my body and this world disappear before me? How do I make the most of it? Kohelet has brought us to an end of ourselves, to an end of the world, to an end of pleasure, to an end of wisdom. He has disabused us of all false hopes, all our idealisms. And now, finally, just when we thought nothing was left, Jacques says, Kohelet tells us what remains. The whole person consists of this fear and this listening. Kohelet, as a witness to this word, has himself served as a goad. The whole of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet himself, he's a goad. He's a cow prod for you. Hey, 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 you can't think like that anymore. Hey, you can't seek all your meaning and all your pleasure and all your significance in this life. Can't do that. Wake up. Wake up. Go the other direction. And the whole time, reading Ecclesiastes, you're like, ow, 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 that hurts. I know, I know, I know. I love you. I love you too much to let you keep going that way. You're going to walk yourself off a cliff. He has served as a goad to bring the reader to the point where he recognizes that things are this way and not otherwise. 
that this process of stripping away all our illusions is the only way for as long as we have illusions, we cannot acknowledge that this fear, respect, and this listening obedience to the Word are everything for us. If you stay in the world where Ecclesiastes is trying to get you out of, where you think pleasure, work, food, uh, relationships, justice, that's everything to me. If you stay in that world, if you seek all your significance here and now, you're going to regret it. You'll never get to the point where fearing God and obeying His commandments are actually where you seek your life. Or as Michael Fox put it, the book now says, even if everything is absurd, nevertheless, we must fear God and keep His commandments. We may wander around bruised and bewildered. We may see the meaning of life crumble if we stare at it too carefully. But we can still do what we are supposed to do. Fear God and keep His commandments. And we know what this is, even if we are ignorant of His consequences. And that is no small thing. I know life seems absurd. I know you don't know why everything's happened that's happened in your life. I know there's stuff that's crooked that you can't straighten out. I know. I can't straighten it out either. But the Bible continues to tell us, fear God, keep His commandments. That's your jam. That's your thing. That's home. Fear God, keep His commandments. Fear God, keep His commandments. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter what you're disillusioned about, no matter what's disappointing you, no matter what is making you despair, you fear God and you keep His commandments. That's home. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He taught the true depth of the law's requirement when he said that even if you lust after a woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Even if you hate your brother or are angry with him, you've murdered him in your heart. You realize you are a murderer. You are an adulterer in your heart. You, you don't even have that excuse. You can't even compare yourself favorably to other people. And say, well, at least I haven't murdered anybody. Yes, you have. You've murdered a lot of people in your heart, haven't you? Because you've hated them. You've been really sinfully angry at them for stupid things. I've never cheated on my wife. Yes, you have. You lusted after that woman, didn't you? You cheated on her in your heart. So, if that is how deeply we must fear God and keep His commandments, then how can that be good news for sinners like us? Well, Jesus told the crowd to work not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And the crowds asked him, John 6, what must we do then to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Jesus never lusted. Jesus was never sinfully angry. He never hated. Friends, to fear God means that you admit that you cannot atone for your worst works or please Him with your best works. That's what it means to fear God. It means you recognize God is holding all the cards against you. He has every ace in the deck. and You've got nothing. You're not even holding a pair. You fear Him then 
by admitting how far you are from meeting his standards and his law. But you do not fault the law, you fault yourself. It's my fault that I disobey. It's my fault that I have an adulterous, angry, covetous heart. And then by God's grace you fly to Jesus to hide in his obedience to God's commands on your behalf and his endurance of God's curse on your behalf, which your sins deserve, repentance from self-reliance and self-justification in your sin, and pride and faith instead in Christ and his righteousness worked out for you in his life and death. That is what it means to fear God. To fear God means I can't do what I know you rightly command me to do. can't. We parents say this kind of stuff to our kids all the time, right? We expect this of our kids. Obedience all the way, right away, with a happy heart. Now, we feel very justified in telling our children that, and we get very tired of having to tell it to them over and over and over and over and over again, days without end. And that is what God expects of you and I, of you and me, sorry, grammarians, you and me. God expects you and me to give him obedience right away, all the way, with a happy heart. And we don't do it. You don't do that. Not every time. But Jesus did. And so you hide yourself in him. Fear of the Lord hides in the righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus as the only thing that can please your Heavenly Father and reconcile you to them. Only then are you ready to hear the last line of Ecclesiastes with any sort of hope. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Mm. Talk about a cattle prod. Talk about a goad. That one hurts, doesn't it? That hurts. That one makes us like, hey, maybe that did cause injury. There's pain in that one. But it prods you in the right direction. What invests ultimate meaning into all of life is the very thing we cannot stand to think about, God's judgment, his evaluation, his moral scrutiny of us based on how we lived our lives. He will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good and evil. And upon reading that sentence, we are immediately undone if we are relying at all on our own track record. This is not just an Old Testament doctrine. It's a New Testament doctrine. Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The great hope, the only hope, is that our judge will be the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So sinner, repent. Turn from your self-reliance. Quit trying to justify yourself by how well you have obeyed God's law or how well you have obeyed your own standard in the place of God's law. Jesus kept all God's commands, endured all God's curse for all those who will ever trust in him. And because he has done so, Jesus himself is our wisdom. In other words, he is our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, all of it. Charles Bridges sums it up well. All other things are vain, but it is not vain to fear the Lord. They that do good, their works will follow them to heaven. And they that have done evil, their works will hunt them and pursue them to hell. And for those of us who have confessed and repented our sins and now orient our lives together around the fellowship of Christ and his church, we affirm with Paul in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. So as we wait and as we groan, as we hope and serve, as we work and pray, we encourage each other with what is true, unchangingly, of our life and work because of the resurrection of life in Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray again. Well, Father, we pray, renew the inner man in us that you have given us to delight in the law of God, to fear you, to hide in Christ, to receive a new spirit from you so that we can obey your commands, so that we want to. Subdue our stubbornness so that we submit and delight in your sovereignty. And may you be pleased with us in Christ. And may we look forward to the final day with eagerness, with hope that it will be the day of salvation, the redemption of our bodies, because we are in, united with the risen Christ for his sake. Amen.